this is the Word of God. Now, if you're like me, you've struggled with a few components in this, in this passage. Let me give you three difficulties that I personally struggled with when I read this passage. You know, as a child, as a young adult, and even before preparing this sermon. The first difficulty I struggled with was, why is the one-talent servant, why is he merely punished and not even recognized at all for not losing the one talent that belonged to the master? Because he could have been really sloppy and lost everything, like the prodigal, the younger prodigal son who took his father's inheritance and wasted it all. Why was this uh, one-talent servant not even acknowledged for the fact that at least he didn't waste it, but he kept it? Is that not a good deed? The second difficulty I had with this passage was, why does Jesus use the example of a harsh, exploiting master to make his point? Is he trying to say that God is like that? And of course, the answer is no, but my question is, why? Why use the, an example of a, of a harsh, oppressive, exploiting master? And the third difficulty I have with this passage was, why was the one talent that was taken from the wicked servant, why was that given to the five-talent servant and not to the two-talent servant? Because both of them were recognized, right? Both of them were, uh, to both of them, the master said, well done. Then why was it given to the five-talent servant, right? So those are three questions that I have struggled with in this passage, and we're going to go through it. And I'm not going to focus on the, on the front matter of this parable, but I want to focus on the, on the response of Jesus Christ and the response of the one-talent servant. Okay? But in order to show you what's going on, just in case this is the first time you're reading this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through it pretty quick. Okay? So the servants, the three servants, have three responsibilities. What were their responsibilities? Well, one servant was given five talents to take care of that. The other two talents and the one. So each servant had different responsibilities. And why was there a difference in number? Well, the reason is the text actually tells us the master gave to each servant according to his ability. So if he gave five talents to the two-talent servant, the two-talent the two servant wouldn't be able to handle the five talents, right? If he gave one talent to the five-talent servant, the five-talent servant would be so bored out of his mind, he wouldn't know what else to do with it, okay? He, he would feel that his gifts are not being used. On the other hand, if, you gave, if the master gave too much to someone who, can, who couldn't handle that much, he would feel oppressed. So in that sense, the master was very wise, and he, he knew his servants well enough to give to them according to what they can handle. There were three responsibilities, and there were also three actions by the servants. The five-talent servant went and made five talents more. The two-talent servant went and made two more. The one-talent servant went and dug in the ground, and he hid his master's money. So you have three responsibilities, three separate actions with some similarities and a difference, but when you come to the response of the master, you don't see 
three different responses, and you see only two, which is really interesting. And if you haven't noticed that, the response he gives to the five-talent servant and the response he gives to the two-talent servant is exactly the same. It's verbatim, word for word, it's the same response. And what that's teaching us is the first point I want to make about work and how you as a Christian should live in your workplace and how you should go about working is that for the master, his concern and his focus was not on the difference in amount, the difference in the gifting. The master's concern we see in his response to the five-talent and the two-talent servant, his concern is not whether you made five or two more, okay? That's not his concern. His words show what his concern is. His concern is not even the fact that the servants doubled, each doubled what they originally had. That's not even his concern either. So his concern is not the ability of the servant that he knew were, was different per servant. And his concern wasn't the fact that given within their context and abilities, their respective abilities, that both were able to double what they already had. That was not his concern. His concern, if you look at his responses to both servants, he said, well done, and he uses two descriptions for both of them. What does he say? Well done. Good and faithful servant. And those two are very intentional. One speaks to the character of the servants, and the other speaks to their work. He says good because he's saying their hearts are in the right place. You understand me, and you want what I want. You don't want what I don't want. He's saying, your character is good. And that's important to me. And what Jesus Christ is teaching us is that when you work and how you work, your character, your personal character matters. Secondly, he said faithful. And that refers to our function. He says we are, the servants were loyal and they did the work. So to the master and to Jesus Christ who's telling this parable, there are two things he is concerned about when we are working and as we live our lives working. He's concerned about, how we, about our character being like Christ in our workplace. And secondly, that we are faithful to the way that he wants us to work. For example, and Tim Keller gives this example um, in, in his book. Uh, I, I forget which one it is, but he says in the Old Testament, so it was an agricultural society. When you came and you harvested, right, you would miss some pieces, some grains. And typically, you know, if you're trying to get the most profit, you would go back and harvest all the pieces that you miss, right? The Old Testament teaches, teaches the Jews that when you harvest, don't go back and glean the rest. He says, leave it for the poor and for the foreigner, right? So that they can come into your fields and they can gather up some of the grain 
and so that they can survive and feed, them, feed, their, feed themselves and their families. So that's an example of how the Jews, how they were supposed to work according to the way that God wanted them to work. And if they went back and harvested everything so that when a, when a foreigner or, a, or, a, or someone who is, is, is stricken by poverty, if they came and they found no grain because you harvested every last grain from your field that you own, but that God has given you, right? Deuteronomy 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, right? That whole section, right? You, you, didn't, you were not faithful as a covenant member of God's community, right? So again, two things that the master in this parable and Jesus Christ is concerned about when you work. And it's not about how much you reproduce, and, and it's not about how much you produce compared to the other guy. It's about, are you good, and have you been faithful? In other words, is your heart being molded into the heart of God? Do you have the mind of Christ? Do you have the heart of Christ? And are you working in such a way that God has prescribed you to work? Are you good and are you faithful? That is what he's concerned about. Now, with that understanding, it will help us understand what's going on with the one-talent servant. And as we move there, I want to I wanna show you, I want to remind you what the one-talent servant responded. And if you want to look and read it for yourself, I highly recommend it. Verse 24 and 25, the one-talent servant, when the master comes back from his long journey, and he, after he rewards the five-talent servant, he said, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Jesus is ultimately pointing to glory to come, right? He's pointing to the restoration of all things, all creation. And he says that, he says that same thing to the two-talent servant. Now he comes to the one-talent servant, and the one-talent servant, he says to the master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. And what does the master say? He says, you wicked and slothful servant. Again, character and work. And here the master is saying, you're wicked because your heart does not want to be like your master's heart. You don't want the things that the master wants. You don't want to hate the things that the master wants to hate or that the master hates, right? He says, you're wicked and you're slothful, you're lazy. Now, typically when we come to this, the way that we understand this passage is very simplistic and very selective. What I mean by that is we look at that and we say, okay, let's just make sure we're not lazy and we need to work hard. You're kind of right, but you're also kind of wrong. That's not what it's about. And that's too simplistic of an approach to understand this passage. The master continues to say to the servant after he addresses his character and the way that he works, he said, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed. 
then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with my interest. Now here, here is where that one of those difficult questions apply. It's like, man, is this really God? If this is God, I really don't want to believe in him, and I definitely don't want to serve him, right? Why in the world would God use this kind of example to describe himself? Well, he uses this not in order to show that this is the kind of God I am and that all he cares about is money. Actually, I wanna, I'm going to show you from the text that the master's original intent when he distributed the original five, two, and one talents, his original intent was not to get that back after he came. His original intent was his servant for his servants to keep it. So the master, being rich, by the way, a talent, scholars don't really know how much exactly that is, but what they agree on is that it was a very large sum, <laughs> very large, like multiple lifetimes worth of money. So like some of you may be in work situations where you're working with millions of dollars. Honestly, I'm kind of rudimentary in my mental processing when it comes to that, so I can't really understand what multi-millions of dollars looks like because I'm not here to make that money <laughs> and I don't understand that. I didn't grow up with that money. Maybe crazy rich Asians do, but not me, right? Just I'm just crazy. I'm just a crazy Asian, right? Um, I don't understand that amount and I'm thinking there are some of you here who may be in the same boat, but maybe you may understand it a little bit better than me, but a talent is basically a sum of money back in biblical times that was so large, it would, in one lifetime, you as a servant taking care of that, managing that money, you would not be able to make that kind of money for yourself, right? It's that kind of a context. And in that context, I'm saying the master gave it to the servants in order for the servants to keep it. And the master is that rich. Is he, if he's able to just dish out talents like that, he's like, you know, then the master is just rich. He is wealthy, right? And he's not concerned about losing uh, eight talents. I did my math right, right? Eight talents. He's not concerned about that. Eight talents is nothing to the master. He's like, that's chump change. That's, that's Pastor Tay's money, you know? Not even, <laughs> right? Um, he he gave these talents to them so that they can keep it. And where I'm getting this from the text is in verse 28. When he responds to the one talent servant and the master says, so take the talent from this one talent servant who is wicked and lazy. And he says, give it to him who has the 10 talents. Give it to him who what? Has. The ten talents. Meaning, after the master addressed the five-talent servant, after the five-talent servant made five more and said, look what I did for you, master. And the master said, enter into the joy. Enter into your master's joy. Meaning, he let him in, right? After he has let the servant keep not only the five, not just the prophet, or not even the original five, but the whole package. He's let the servant keep all ten. All ten. Because he has it. 
right? This is critical to understanding the response of the one-talent servant, that the master's original intent was to let the five-talent servant keep his talents, and the same with the two, and even the one. And he says, for to everyone, this is verse 29, for to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth describes hell and the, the, the depression and the tragedy and the, and the sadness and the disappointment and the loneliness and the separation and the suffering of hell. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Right? And you're saying, wow, this is really harsh. So that brings us back to the question, why would Jesus Christ compare God with a, with a manager, with a, not a manager, sorry, the servants were managers, um, with, with, uh, with a master like this? And what I want to do is point you to a different passage. I know I wrote it down here. Um, I can't find it. I'm sorry. Uh, but I believe it's in Luke. I think it's in Luke. If it's not Luke, I forget. But let me tell you where it is. Uh, not where it is. Let me tell you what it is. Um, it's, the, it's, it's the part where Jesus is saying, who would give to a child that's asking for water? A snake. Right? And he's comparing. He's saying... If you who are evil, if you who are sinful and wicked, if you know to give good gifts to your children, you wouldn't, if your child asked you for water, you wouldn't give him a snake. He says, and this is the key verse, how much more will your father, you know, give to you and love you and all of that? How much more will your father? So, you see, there Jesus is using the example of a wicked parent, a wicked father who would, who's sinful, and even wicked fathers know to, or wicked parents know to give good gifts to their children when the children ask. And so in this passage, you see when Jesus is using this very harsh master as an example, he's not saying that this is how God is. He's saying this is how people are in this world. This, these are the people that you work with, these are the people that you marry. These are the people that you bear. These are the people you nurture. These are the people that you are. If even a harsh master can be this generous to his servants, how much more will your Father in heaven be generous to you? That's the message here. That's the teaching. Right? And it completely destroys the question of, I don't want to serve a God this harsh. Of course, no one would. And that's Jesus Christ's point. That's, that's his point. That no one wants to serve a master like this. Praise be to God. God is not a master like this. He's a father to you. He wants to be a father. He chooses to be a father. Um, like, the, like the father in the prodigal son's story. Now, let's take a look at the first talent servant at the one-talent servant. And let's take a look at his rationale behind what, why he did what he did, okay? 
the one talent servant, the reason why he hid the talent in the ground, he feared his master. What, what did he fear? I knew you to be a harsh master. You know what that is? That's, that's us and God and his standard laid out in Old Testament law. If you look at the Old Testament law, there is no one who can be faithful in keeping that law perfectly. No one. Israel, in all of its history, thousands of years of Jewish history, they have proven that they have utterly failed in keeping the law. And in that sense, yeah, God can come across harsh because he has given to his covenant people a standard that they cannot keep. But you see, God did that intentionally. He did that intentionally in order to point them to their need for a savior, showing that Jesus Christ, you can't keep this law, but Jesus Christ, I will send my son, my true son, who will keep this law for you. And all you have to do is trust in him and rely on him. The one talent servant was afraid of that master, but he, he, he knew his master very well in that sense. He knew his standards very well, but what he didn't know, he didn't know how to trust his master. He knew his master to be a harsh master, but he didn't know how compassionate and merciful this master can be. And that is the driving force behind this one talent servant's understanding of his relationship with his master, or better said, the lack of the relationship with his master. He couldn't trust him. He couldn't believe him to be merciful to him if he failed. So he was driven by fear of his master. Secondly, he was driven by, by the fear of risk and loss. The master replies, ironically, the master replies in verse 28, give it to him, give, take the one talent from that one talent servant and give it to him who has the ten talents. Did the one talent servant know that in the end the master was going to give them all the talents anyway? I, I've argued from the text, yes, I believe he did know. And be, it's because he knew that his master was going to let the servants keep their five, two, and one talents that played a part in, his, in, his, in the way that he approached the one talent. It seems like that the master's intention, it seems like that was the master's intention all along. So the one talent servant, by burying the talent, this is what he could avoid. He could avoid the risk of losing the one talent, the one talent that the master gave him in trying to make a profit, in trying to do something, work, in working with that one talent to make something of it, he could avoid the risk of losing it because he was so afraid. At least I have, you have to understand the talent again in biblical times, we don't know the exact amount, but all we know, what, we, what scholars agree on is that it was a big chunk of money. So he was afraid of losing all this money. And so he decided to bury it. And in burying the talent, and he was risk, he was avoiding the risk of losing, but also, and here's, here's the kicker, since he knew that the master was going to let not only the five talent servant to keep the extra five and the five he, he, already, he already gave him, and the two talent servant to let him keep the four talents, so the five talent servant was able to keep the ten, the two talent servant was able to keep the four, he knew this. He knew his master. 
And so he could avoid the risk of losing it by trying to work with the one talent, but he could also keep it in the end. So his reasoning is this, right? His reasoning is this. I, could, I can risk losing the one talent that I have, but how much is the risk of losing me doubling this? So with, with, five talent, with the five-talent servant, doubling it by five, right? The two-talent servant, doubling it by two. The one-talent servant, he can be thinking, okay, even if I double this, it's really not that much compared to the five and the two. So in his mind, he's saying, is it worth it to work hard with this measly one talent that I have instead of the five and the two and not, and not get much return? You see, what is, you see the two things he's juggling. He's juggling the risk of losing the one talent he has and the risk of working too hard and getting too little back. The two risks. He's driven by fear. He's driven by the fear of risking, of risk and loss, instead of being driven by his love for the master and by the master's love for him. So that's how he's thinking. He's like, the best thing for me to do in this situation, if I work at this, I'm going to be working too hard and I'm going to be getting too little. So that's not worth it. If I work at this, I might even lose the talent that I have. That's not worth it. The best thing for me to do is just keep it, hide it, make sure I don't lose this one talent. I'm going to bury it in the ground. No one's going to know except me. That's how people did it in biblical times. That's how they did it. If they had a treasure, they would bury it in the ground, and they would make it so that no one could notice that there's a treasure there except for the owner who buried it. And you see, in that sense, his, the one-talent servant's understanding of work was self-motivated. His understanding of work was defined and measured by how much can I gain and how much risk and loss can I avoid. And you see, this message that was written 2,000 years ago, that was spoken 2,000 years ago, still is a problem to our human nature today because this kind of rationale and this kind of heart competes with God's love, his loyal love for us, and our responsive love to him. It's still an issue today. We think like this. And as a servant that is corrupted by sin, we're all the one-talent servant. We're all the one-talent servant. We think in fear. We think in, in loss, what, how much can I lose and um, how much can I avoid losing? When all the master, you see, the servant is all about his abilities and all about the amount, whether he has more or has less or he keeps what he has. But you see, the master, what he wants, he wants servants that don't, that aren't like, managers of greater amounts of talents. He doesn't want servants who, who produce in the greatest abundance and compared to other servants. What the master wants and what ultimately, this is my argument for you as, my, as your brother in Christ, ultimately what your heart longs for 
is for you to hear from your master one day, from Christ himself, well done, good and faithful servant. Not, well done, you made this much, I'll keep you around. Not, well done, you're better than this guy, I'll keep you around. All of us want to hear Jesus say to us, good and faithful servant. That's what we all want. And he knows our hearts. And we're approaching, we've bought into the lie of how work should be conditioned by how much ability we have in comparison to the other guy. When we should be concerned about whether our heart is following the heart of our master and whether we are faithfully living that out today and this week. You see, work is not a result of the fall that needs to be avoided in some kind of detached heaven one day. Work, what God has designed work from the beginning when he created Adam and Eve in creation, he gave them work. And it was a good thing. What the fall did was it corrupted work. And it led us to believe a lie about work. But in Christ, that work, the way we understand work and what God is doing in work is going to be restored. And it's through your lives. It's through your hearts. You know, Jesus said, why do you call me good? There's no one, there's no one good but the Father. But but God. And Jesus Christ is good. And you see, for the master to call the servant good, he's saying, you look like me. You look like me. You live like me. Good and faithful servant. You see, the way we approach work must be completely different. Matthew 5, and I'm going to end with this. Matthew 5, verse 14 through 16 says, you are, Jesus is talking, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. A light is not supposed to be hidden under something. The talent that God has given you is not to be hidden in the ground. Trust your master. He's sovereign. He's your Lord. He's your Father. He loves you. He's going to take care of you. He's taking care of me and all of my failures. Um, he will take care of you. He will. He's such a good father. And I want to encourage you that when you approach your work life, and we're going to start, um, we're going to start shaping our discipleship on this topic, on faith and work. Do not buy into the lie of the worldview and the philosophy that you only have worth in your work life when you produce more and when you look better than the other guy. 
That is a lie. And it's demonic. It's from Satan himself. And I'm not being extreme. It's from the, it's from the Garden of Eden. That's the lie he communicated to Eve. And that Adam knowingly bought into. That's a lie. The truth is that God has made you in his image and you are to live each day of your life living faithfully to that image so that when God looks at you from heaven and when the Holy, as the Holy Spirit lives in you that you look more like Jesus Christ just like our children look like our parents. You are to resemble and to reflect your master who refuses to simply be called your master, but who affirms and is committed to you in such a way that he wants to be your father. That's who you're working for. You're working not for a harsh master on earth, but you're working for a father in heaven. So work joyfully for him. And don't buy into the lie. Because Christ will restore this earth. He will restore us one day. Just trust him that he will. And if sufferings come, let it come. Because even in suffering, God can turn that around for great unexpected joy, as he did on the cross when Jesus suffered tremendously. And that cross, that is a symbol of death, and shame became a symbol of life and honor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together and for loving us in such a way that we don't deserve. We love you, Lord, because you loved us first. Lord, we are disloyal to you in our hearts, but you are ever loyal to us. And Father, as we consider how we can reflect you in our workplace. Lord, help us to remember that the goal of work is not how better we can perform compared to others around us, and that the goal of work is not how much we can produce to merit some kind of favor with people with our companies, and even with you, God, and even with our families. But Lord, remind us gently but firmly in your love that the goal of work is to be faithful to you. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please arise with me as we sing our response song.